Do you remember the good old days when all you had to worry about was getting your homework done and getting home before curfew? Before you had to worry about jobs, projects, working, when you could long for a summer vacation and a winter break? Well, this is the podcast for when you realize that life can be hard. Hold on one moment. Oh, finally, he's gone. Last thing I need to hear is him plugging another podcast. Come take a listen to my show, Adulting Ain't Easy, every other Wednesday on the Journey into Comics Network. The following, the following, the following journey, into journey into Comics. 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 Network. 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 Production. Production. You're listening to Poor Entertainment. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Andrew Poor. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is episode two of Poor Entertainment. Yes, Poor Entertainment, the show covering all of the entertainment news that's coming around and around and around. I'm your host, Andrew Poor, as always, and I'm here to bring you the news for this week, or this past two weeks. Big things have happened since last time we spoke. And for those who don't know, yes, this is Poor Entertainment. Like I said, it's about entertainment news. You can come next week to listen to Poor News, which is similar to the Poor Report, which it was before, which covers topics regarding government, U.S. international news, all the big news that's going on outside of the world of entertainment. So basically, one is strictly entertainment, like music, movies, TV, all of that stuff, sports, all that And the other side is, yeah, world news, political news, Trump news, all that fun stuff. We'll be under the poor news, which is, we'll alternate with this show. So next week we poor news, following week will be another poor entertainment. So definitely stay tuned for that. There's definitely a lot to talk about, and I'm probably going to be recording that early. So I'll be on vacation in Washington, D.C. for a wedding. So there'll probably be some fun follow-up to that later when I return. So jumping right into news, I have a lot of articles to talk about this week because there's been a lot that's happened. Kind of jumping around up, this is kind of in the order in which I collect the news, which is about a week or so old now, so, but some of it's newer, like I said. Uh, it's a two-week show, so it's hot topics from the past two weeks. And the one thing that I thought was kind of interesting is that the Eagles' greatest hit surpasses Michael Jackson's Thriller as the best-selling album. This album originally released in 1976. The collection has sold more than 38 million copies. So it's a record that was, the previous record was held by Michael Jackson's Thriller for more than 30 years. So, The Eagles' Greatest Hits from 1971 to 1975, a perennial seller since its initial release in February 1976, has surpassed 38 million copies sold. The Eagles knocked Jackson's 1982 smash to number two, but the band also holds the number three spot with the album Hotel California, also released in 1976. That album has certified 26 times platinum for sales and streams of more than 26 million copies. Says Kerry Sherman, Chairman CEO of RIAA, congratulations to the Eagles, who now claim the jaw-dropping feat of writing and recording two of the three albums in music history, two of the top three albums. Both of these transcendent albums have impressively stood the test of time, only gaining more currency and popularity as the years have passed, much like the Eagles themselves. The Eagles lost founding member Glenn Frey in January 2016, but continued to tour with Don Henley, Joe Walsh, and Timothy B. Schmidt, making up the core of the group, and Frey's son, Deacon Frey, and Vince Gill joining. The Eagles have sold more than 150 million albums and won six Grammys. The band was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1998 in the first year of eligibility and received the Kennedy Center Honors in 2016. So congratulations to the Eagles, and we'll see if Thriller t- reclaims the throne with more album sales. And I think in the in the age of digital media, it'll be interesting to see 
if there's a lot of adjustment there, if that's kind of is what it is. And moving from that to some more movie news, and this is regarding two movies that I've just seen recently, and that is Sorry to Bother You director Boots Riley criticizes Spike Lee's fabricated Black Klansman. Both these films are great in their own way. Definitely encourage everyone to see those. Uh, I can probably give more in-depth reviews later, but there's a lot of news to talk about today, so we'll have to wait. So, Sorry to Bother You director Boots Riley slammed Spike Lee's Black Klansman in a lengthy essay posted to Twitter on Friday, which accused the film of skewing facts to falsely paint law enforcement as heroes. Black Klansmen, sorry to bother you, are two summer films that have been revered for their progressive storyline and spotlight in the African-American community. Though Black Klansmen is based on a true story, Riley said he is skeptical of it and claims it's full of fabricated story notes about its protagonist. Ron Stallworth, John David Washington, a black detective who infiltrates a local chapter of the Ku Klux Klan with his white partner played by Adam Driver. It's a made-up story in which the false parts of it try to make a cop the protagonist in the fight against racist oppression. Riley wrote in his introduction, it's being put while Black Lives Matter is a discussion, and this is not coincidental. The director argued that the purpose of Black Klansman's alleged revisionist history is to portray the police in a more favorable light in an attempt to soften relations between law enforcement and people of color amid the Black Lives Matter movement. In support of his claims, Riley suggests the validity of Stallworth's memoir and its film adaption, which credits Stallworth and his partner for halting white supremacist attacks, including an attempted bombing. Starworth wrote a memoir to put himself in a different light, but let, let's look at what else we know, Riley wrote. There were no bombings that Starworth or the police thwarted. There was n- that was not in Starworth's memoirs. This was made up for the movie to make the police seem like heroes. This states that, in actuality, Starworth was a member of FBI's counterintelligence program, whose objectives were to destroy radical organizations, especially black radical organizations. When white supremacist organizations were infiltrated by the FBI and the cops, it did not... It was not to disrupt them, he argued. They weren't disrupted. It was used them to threaten or physically attack radical organizations. There was no directive to stop the rise of white supremacist organizations. Rod also accused the real Starworth of aiding in the orchestration of terrorist attacks on the African-American community during the civil rights movement, including church bombings in Birmingham, Alabama, the assassination of civil rights organizer from Detroit, and the Greensboro massacre of Communist Worker Party members in 1979. This is what Ron Starworth was helping to do, and he was doing it in that era, he wrote. To cap his essay, Riley referenced reports that Lee received $200,000 from the NYPD to help in an ad campaign that was aimed at improving relations with minority communities. Whether it actually is or not, Black Kansan feels like an extension of that ad campaign, he wrote. So, definitely interesting, and I feel like two very progressive movies, like basically this year's, are doing for kind of a historical drama and a, I don't even know what he'd call Sorry About You. Sorry About You is very hard to define. It's a very interesting movie where the first two-thirds of the movie are one thing and the last third is a whole another thing altogether, similar to kind of what Get Out did last year. So both are really worth seeing. They're both very powerful movies. Being white and seeing Black Klansman, though, was a very interesting position to be in, but most of my theater was also white, and there was old Jewish women sitting next to me. So definitely made for an interesting movie, a going experience, but also that with a double feature with Mission Impossible Fallout. So that made for a very weird night for me. But both were very good movies, and so was Sorry to Bother You. And moving on to that, to uh, the events by uh, Lost co-creator Damon Lindelof is uh, doing a Watchmen series for HBO, and it's official. He's going to write and produce the series. It's already got a series pickup after the pilot. Um, there have been rumors that HBO is picking up a new version of the Watchmen series adapted for TV for some time. 
Now the company has announced it's officially greenlit the show, which is being written and produced by Damon Lindelof, the co-creator of Lost in films like Star Trek Into Darkness and Prometheus. There aren't many details of the series yet, but we'll know it'll debut in 2019. Set in an alternate history where superheroes are treated as outlaws, Watchmen embrace the nostalgia of the original groundbreaking graphic novel while attempting to break new ground on its own. So it'll be interesting to see if this is a, just a straight adaption of the comic, if it's going to be a full-on adaption that goes in a new direction, like we've seen in other comic works. So it'll be interesting to see how that comes out to be. I'll probably watch it if I end up getting HBO to watch Game of Thrones anyway. So, and moving down the line, Chris Pine wants to reclaim Scotland in Netflix's Outlaw King, a film that released in November. So Netflix released a trailer uh, for its historical film Outlaw King, starring Chris Pine. The film tells the story of Robert the Bruce and his effort to reclaim control of Scotland from the King of England. In the trailer, we see Robert the Bruce in hiding after being declared an outlaw and his family being questioned and brutalized by those attempting to hunt him down. I'm done with running and I'm sick of hiding, we hear him say. What follows a series of scenes showing Robert the Bruce building his following and fighting back against the strongest army in the world. Outlaw King will be released in select theaters November 9th as well as Netflix. And the theatrical release could mean the company has its eyes on some awards. The Academy Awards and some film festivals require a theatrical run in order to be consideration for awards. And in the past, Netflix has used short, limited releases to fill those requirements. Some directors, including Alfonso Cuaron and Paul Gringas, are poorly pushing for more significant theatrical runs for their upcoming Netflix films. However, the streaming giant received eight Oscar nominations this year, winning one for the documentary Icarus. Outlaw King also stars Aaron Taylor-Johnson, who as well played Kick-Ass and was also um, in Avengers Age of Ultron as Quicksilver. And Florence uh, Pugh, who uh, played, was in Lady Macbeth. It'll screen at both the Toronto International Film Festival and Venice Film Festival, as well as a number of other Netflix releases, including Quran's film Roma. And it's directed by the same guy who did Hell or High Water, which is also a great movie that I encourage people to see. And sticking with movie news, Renona Wider thinks that she and Connor Reeves were officially married on the set of Dracula 26 years ago, and he had no idea. In a recent interview with Entertainment Weekly, Renona Ryder said she thinks that she and Connor Reeves might have actually accidentally gotten married while filming Dracula in 1992. In that scene, Francis Ford Coppola used a real Romanian priest. We shot the master and needed the whole thing, so I think we're married. Reeves couldn't seem to remember. Francis Ford Coppola said that the theory checks out. We actually got married in Dracula, writer said. No, I swear to God, I think we're married in real life. As it turns out, when they were filming Dracula, Francis Ford Coppola, who directed the movie, won an accurate wedding ceremony. In that scene, Francis used a real Romanian priest. Uh, she added, we shot the master and did the whole thing, so I think we're married. But when asked, Reeves seemed to struggle to remember. We said yes, he asked on their on-screen wedding. Don't you remember that? It was on Valentine's Day, she said. Oh my gosh, we're married, Reeves said. Quill and the writer's marriage plot seemed to check out the Guardian reports. This is pretty authentic, I think very beautiful, because we actually did the ceremony and had the priest do the ceremony, uh, Coppola said, on the movie's wedding. So in a sense, when we're all done, we realize that Connie and Rod really are married as a result of this scene and this ceremony. So if this all turns out to be true, Reeves and Ryder could have been married for the last 26 years. In any case, the 90s icons will reunite on screen in Destination Wedding, which heads to theaters August 31st, which I honestly know nothing about, other than I think that it has those two in it. And moving right down the line and regarding another movie news, which involves the, the fallen actor Kevin Spacey. His last, probably, pick, Billionaire Boys Club, bombs at the box office. 
So then another trades found great clickbait in declaring that Vertical Entertainment's Kevin Spacey drama Billionaire Boys Club was the lowest opening ever of the fallen actor's career with a $618 opening at 11 theaters. But the rally, you'd have to be psychic to know the film was playing anywhere. Furthermore, as for a distributor like Vertical in the theatrical VOD business, it's not about the money is made at the box office, but on VOD. And industry sources believe that Billionaire Boys Club easily could churn a seven-digit revenue on pay-per-view at the end of the day. That said, it is no way in this $50 million budget drama starring Baby Driver's Ansel Eggert headed for any profit. And in the wake of the Spacey scandal, VOD was the best way to go for this movie. The pick at one point ranked in the top 20 on iTunes. Billionaire Boys Club's never positioned for the actual release in the specialty sense of the words like focus features and even an Amazon release. By and large, cable contracts with theatrical VOD distributors dictate a one-week, ten-big-city market theatrical run. This is so that a film like Billionaire Boys Club can be slotted in the in-theaters portion of a VOD menu and be rented and sold at a higher price. Furthermore, with a VOD release, the distributor four-walls the film for a week at a theater, which is what happened here with Billionaire Boys Club, meaning the distributor literally rents each theater and each market for around five dollars to $10,000 a week. Some of these... Sorry, some AMC theaters are part of the Billionaire Boys Club play. They have a policy of not playing national theatrical VOD releases. So the only way to get around that run is for you to rent or four-wall the theater. In this case of Billionaire Boys Club, Vertical rented in L.A., Chicago, San Francisco, Detroit, Phoenix, Sarasota, Tampa, Minneapolis, Miami, New Orleans, and Hartford, Connecticut. So it's not like a typical distributor exhibited film gross rental where ticket sales are split, and it's not like a distributor is getting ideal venues. Since theatrical is just qualifying means for VD releases, smaller distributors, yeah, you kind of get the picture. The media would love to declare that no one went to Billionaire Boys Club in the theatrical strictly because of Spacey, when the real reasons are that the majority of people didn't even know the film was playing and never saw any national ads. Furthermore, none of the one-sheets or VOD kiosks featured Spacey's image or his name. His likeliness was wisely hidden. Some distributors like IFC still take the theatrical portion of their VOD run seriously and put some heft behind it. Read the Catcher was a spy, which has grossed seven or ten thousand. But for many distributors in the VOD business, the cash is at home with cable and internet. So, yeah, not a big turnout for Kevin Spacey, which is not surprising, given everything that's happened with him the past year. Still kind of curious about the movie because it does have some Nate, some decent name of some young actors behind it, but. I'll pro- it'll probably never make it into like a red box or anything like that, and I don't feel like spending big money to actually watch it. So that's that. And going on to other movie news, which is Top Gun sequel adds John Hamm and Ed Harris. So Lewis Pullman has been enlisted for Tom Cruise's Maverick. The Danger Zone is getting a little more crowded. John Hamm, Ed Harris, and Lewis Pullman, son of actor Bill Pullman, have joined Top Gun Maverick, the Hollywood Reporter has confirmed. Details on the roles are being kept a mystery. The Tom Cruise sequel is directed from Joseph... Krasinski, not to be confused with John Krasinski, who helmed the star's 2013 sci-fi thriller Oblivion. Other actors already enlisted in the film include Val Kilmer, Miles Teller, Jennifer Connelly, and Glenn Powell. Ham, known for AMC's Mad Men, recently starred in the action comedy Tag, while Harris's HBO sci-fi drama Westworld wrapped its second season in June. Pullman credits include the horror film The Strangers Pray at Night and a role in the upcoming Catch-22 miniseries. Top Gun Maverick opens July 12, 2019. And kind of going on to some TV news, and that involves so the Superman's return to DCCW this fall, bringing Lois Lane with him. Tyler Hecklin is scheduled to reprise his role as Superman for the CW's upcoming Flash, Arrow, Supergirl crossover episode this fall, and Lois Lane will debut by his side. 
We couldn't be more excited to introduce Lois Lane to the Arrowverse, Supergirl executive producers Jessica Queller and Robert Rovner said in a joint statement. This dog determined and brave reporter will make for a strong partner to Superman an amazing addition to our universe of DC characters. Warner Brothers Television reportedly begin casting for the Lois Lane role shortly. And for those who don't know, the three-part crossover will involve the introduction of Batwoman and should be an interesting thing to check out. Um, no word yet if it's going to include any of the legends since they will their night will not be part of the crossover. I'm definitely curious though because I don't think Tarleton was involved at all in season two of Supergirl or across any of the other CW shows. Be interesting to see if they do anything with him or anyone else around this for the DC Universe streaming service coming out later this year. And moving to more recent theatrical news, and that involves Neil Simon, the Broadway master of comedy, is dead at the age of 91. Now, Neil Simon's the playwright whose name was synonymous with Broadway comedy and commercial success in the theater for decades, and helped redefine popular American humor with an emphasis on the fabrication fictions of urban living and the agonizing conflicts of family intimacy, died on Sunday in Manhattan. He was 91. His death at New York Presbyterian Hospital was announced by his publicist, Bill Evans. The cause of complications of pneumonia, he said, Mr. Simon was also reported to have had Alzheimer's disease. Early in his career, Mr. Simon wrote for television greats including Phil Silvers and Sid Caesar. Later he wrote for the movies too, but it was as a playwright that he earned his lasting fame. With a long series of actually tooled laugh machines that kept his name on Broadway marquees virtually nonstop through the late 60s and 70s. Beginning with the breakthrough hits Barefoot in the Park and The Odd Couple and continuing with popular sexes like Plaza Suites, The Prisoner of Second Avenue, and The Sunshine Boys, Mr. Simon ruled Broadway and Broadway was still worth ruling. From 1965 to 1980, his plays and musicals racked up more than 9,000 performances, a record not even remotely touched by any other playwright of the era. In 1906 alone, he had four Broadway shows running simultaneously. He also owned a Broadway theater for a spell in the 1960s, the Eugene O'Neill, and in 1903 had a different Broadway theater named after him, a rare accolade for a living playwright. Far the popularity with audiences, Mr. Simon's great success in the first years of his fame rarely earned wide critical acclaim. In Broadway revivals of The Odd Couple in 2005 and Barefoot in the Park in 2006, the little change to the general view of his early work was most notable for its surefire conceits and snappy punchlines. In the introduction to one of his play collections, Mr. Simon quoted the critic Clive Barnes as once writing, Neil Simon is destined to remain rich, successful, and underrated. But Mr. Simon gained a firmer purchase on critical respect in the 1980s with his darker-hued semi-autobiographical trilogy, Brighton Beach Memoirs, Biloxi Blues, and Broadway Bound. These comedy dramas were admired for the way they explored the tangle of love and anger and desperation that bound together and drove apart a Jewish working-class family as viewed from the perspective of the youngest son, a restless wisecracker with an eye on showbiz fame. The writers at last begins to examine himself honestly without compromise, Frank wrote of Biloxi Blues in the New York Times, and the result is the most persuasive, serious effort to date, not to mention his funniest play since the golden age of his first decade. In 1991, Mr. Simon won a Tony Award as well as the Ultimate American Playwright Award, the Pulitzer Prize for Lost and Yonkers, another autobiographical comedy, the one about a fiercely withholding mother and emotionally and intellectually underdeveloped daughter. It was his last major success on Broadway. Mr. Simon and Woody Allen, who both worked in the 1950s writing for Mr. Caesar, along with Mel Brooks, Larry Gilbert, and Carl Reiner, among others, were probably equally significant in shaping the currents of American comedy in the 60s and 70s, although their styles, their favorite, their favorite mediums, and their critical reception of their work diverged mightily. Mr. Simon was the 
populist who successful jokes packed plays about the anxieties of everyday characters could tickle funny bones in theaters across the country as well as 1200 seat broadway houses and the article kind of goes on from there but uh a little bit of connection to neil simon uh i did plays in theater growing up and did him into my early adulthood and i actually was uh i played the older brother in brighton beach memoirs when i was still in high school and it was a uh, it was a very interesting role it was very fun to play some drama with some comedy thrown in and being a Kind of the straight man in that kind of comedy. Straight man being like the non-funny character. Actually, to kind of be a powerful scene of like a young adult dealing with providing for his family while still living under his father's roof. It was very, definitely an interesting story. But yeah, Neil Simon's one of the greats and uh, definitely rest in peace. And moving from movie news to music news, and that involves... uh, Demi Lovato's drug dealer uh, says she knew taking aftermarket pills were risky. I don't know why. This is from TMZ, which take with a grain of salt. The man who supplied Demi Lovato with drugs the night she OD'd said she knew exactly the chance she was taking that she was ingesting aftermarket pills, which made things risky. Brandon Johnson told our photo photog Demi texted at him at 4 a.m. the morning she OD'd and asked him to come over. He said he read between the lines and brought pills, which they freebased together. He strongly insinuates the two of them did drugs together many times before and even had a sexual relationship. One source, one Demi source strongly denied there was any sexual relationship. As for the pills, Johnson said Demi knew they were not pharmaceuticals, but much stronger. Though he denies knowing the relation or anything, TMZ broke the story. Johnson and Torosi got pills from Mexico, many of which were allegedly laced with fentanyl. Uh, Johnson said he left around 7 or 8 a.m. and Demi was sleeping with no signs of distress. An assistant found Demi in deep stress at around 11.30 on July 24th and called 911. She almost died and had to be revived by Narcan. So, yeah, I'm not sure quite why that's news, but um, it's kind of we're talking about that the TMZ has kind of gone to the point of just interviewing a supposed drug dealer just to get some more information. And I'm talking to you, which is probably not much better. And I'm going to save one article for the end, but I think I will move on to... I guess it's kind of back to a little bit of movie news, and that involves some superhero movie news, which is Ethan Hawke doesn't think superhero movies deserve the same praise as all the other movies. Despite the occasional superhero film earning recognition at the Academy Awards, most recently with the critically acclaimed Logan, which netted a Best Original Screenplay nomination earlier this year, a significant breakthrough in the genre, Ethan Hawke can't seem to discuss those films without a layer of condescension. In a new interview with the film stage, Hawke reportedly expressed his annoyance that people don't separate superhero films with, well, literally all other films in existence. He says, now we have a problem that they tell us Logan is a great movie, explained. Well, it's a great superhero movie. It still involves people in ties with metal coming out of their hands. It's not Bresson. It's not Bergman. But they talk about it like it is. He continued with his gripe with Logan growing stronger. I went to see Logan because everybody was like, this is a great movie. And I was like, really? No, this is a fine superhero movie. There's a difference. But big business doesn't think there's a difference. Big business wants you to think that this is a great film because they want to make money off of it. Why do we have feeling Hawk isn't a big fan of the Oscars new popular film category? So this is kind of where I just realized. I think that a good movie definitely surpasses a genre that it's in. There are great horror movies like we, like we saw with Get Out. There are great historical dramas. Like I thought The Post was very good. And I thought like, where do we draw a line? Like Zuber is another genre. Like we're talking about historical fiction being a drama or biographical being like a genre to worry about memoir or an autobiographical movie like everything fits in a genre 
comedy, all of that. It's a genre of film. You can't say a super film can't be great because it's super film. It can only be a great superhero film. I, maybe he just wants to be in one, but the way he's talking now, that's not going to happen. And speaking of super movies, uh, this comes as no surprise to anyone who's listened to the uh, poor entertainment or some earlier poor report episodes before the transition is that Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 has been put on hold. According to new reports, production of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 is being put on hold as Marvel and Disney regroup following the firing of director James Gunn. Source to Hollywood reported that the small group of crew members who were pre- prepping for pre-production have been dismissed and are free to look for new work at this time. While Disney never officially set a release date for the film, a source confirms the timeline has definitely shifted. So, yeah, definitely see what happens then. I'm kind of leaning to the mind that we'll just never see a Guardians 3 that'll just disappear. The characters and actors under contract will be shifted into other films. They might go in a different direction, like a Captain Marvel sequel with her in space, featuring some of the Guardians cast or something like that, or maybe a Thor spinoff with some of those characters, but I don't know if we'll actually ever see a Guardians 3 film or a Guardians characters again. But... Who knows? I know some other people in the network are very optimistic, but I'm definitely pessimist when I come to this kind of news. And to kind of wrap up today's episode involves a personal favorite actor, writer, director, the man himself, Kevin Smith, celebrates dramatic weight loss six months after severe heart attack. It's been half a year since Kevin Smith suffered a near-fatal heart attack and was instructed by his doctor to lose quite a lot of weight. Now the acclaimed director is celebrating a job well done. Smith took to Instagram on Sunday to show yet again how much he likes going above and beyond people's expectations with a front and side shot of his incredible progress. This Weight Watchers ambassador is thrilled to announce that I've lost 51 pounds, he declared. Six months ago from right now, I was in the hospital recovering from a heart attack I'd had the night before. When I went to my doctor's week later, she said, the best thing you can do for yourself now is to lose 50 pounds. Half a year later, I can report that I've followed doctor's orders, Smith wrote. I started at 256 and now I weigh 205. This is the lightest I've been since high school. My hope now is that I can slowly lose another 10, which we always get down to my birth weight of 195, Smith joked. But for now, I'm excited to have reached this chunky milestone. Smith went on to thank Penn Gillette, who recently documented his own massive weight loss in his book Presto, and radical nutritionist Ray Kronz for their sage dieting wisdom, as well as his daughter for leading him to and supporting his new vegan lifestyle. Mostly I want to thank all of you as well for the kind and encouraging words along the way, Smith added. Never underestimate the power of positive feedback. You folks telling me I looked better or healthier helped me stick with it. An encouraging word can really make a difference in someone's life, and your compliments kept me going. And just look where I went. Smith was rushed to the hospital on February 25th with a 100% blockage in his, on his left anterior descending artery, which is also known as a widowmaker. However, due to, the, to emergency surgery and talented doctors, Smith survived. Smith had already lost 80 to 90 pounds over the decade leading up to his cardiac episode, but doctors said the damage had already been done and he needed to get even healthier which led to his aggressive approach to weight loss and changing his relationship with food. E.T. caught up with Smith at San Diego Comic-Con last month, and the Hollyweed star admitted that he had never thought he would ever actually be fit. I just assumed I'd be fat my whole life. I've never seen my high school weight again or any of those things, Smith shared. But after the heart attack, suddenly I was like, all right, I never want to be back to that room again with someone growing up my groin to get my heart through my femoral artery, telling me there was a 20% chance that I will live and 80% chance I will die. So, definitely congratulations to Kevin Smith on that dramatic weight loss, but switching to vegan lifestyle is something I don't think I could do, but it's crazy to think that now Kevin Smith, who I've known my whole life as being a 
a larger than life heavy funny man who's been a great director actor all of that to actually be thinner than me now so maybe i got some work to do but i don't know if i'll ever get down to 205 but hey you never know stranger things have happened and if kevin smith can do it there's hope for the rest of us but i'm definitely not going vegan for it so definitely congrats to him uh it would have been really unfortunate if we did we did lose on february 25th that would be my birthday and that would have been very sad connection and with that i think that's a good way to wrap up this week's episode uh definitely look forward to being back in a few in a couple weeks with more news and maybe some updates from other movies i've seen i've been trying to see a lot of movies lately i just watched dead poet society for the first time which is a great movie i don't know why it took me this long to watch it it's been sitting on my shelf still in its wrapper for who knows how long probably since robin williams died and i kind of got on a robin williams movie kick and i bought a bunch of movies and only watched a few of them still my personal favorite of him is bicentennial man which i know a lot of people don't like but i always thought it was an interesting movie and i really enjoyed the character jack is also one that's up there and i know there's some other movies on my current on my queue and like my my next account on my list or on my hulu account all that so definitely i'm trying to keep up with that but i think that'll do it for this week as always, I am Andrew. I'm here to bring you all of your entertainment news. And if you have any thoughts, feedback, questions, you can reach out to me on Twitter, at Poor Entertainment, I believe, or it's at Poor Ent. I can't remember how long I was shortened by that poor, that at symbol, but it was the former Poor Report Twitter hand, or Poor Report account, so if you were following that, it'll be right there for you. And if you want to get early access to the show before it drops you can subscribe to our patreon which is for a dollar you get early access to all of our shows as well as exclusive podcasts and for those of you who want poor news you can also that early i'm actually i'll be recording that shortly after this so you can definitely check that out as well here shortly but that does it for this week i'm andrew have a great week talk to you soon